The scripture reading this morning is taken from Psalm 31, verses 1 through 5. I would encourage you to open your Bibles, and if you don't have a copy of the scriptures with you in the seat in front of you, you should be able to find one. The page numbers for the scripture reading in that book are pages 461 and 462. Again, Psalm 31, verses 1 through 5. To the choir master, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Wayne. I appreciate you reading that text for us. We're going to look at more of that psalm as we go throughout the sermon, but I do encourage you, like and I agree with Wayne, to have a copy of the scriptures open to the text because we'll be looking at this uh, throughout the sermon today. Uh, it is, it's been an enriching study for me uh, personally to go through this, uh, the names of God. And, and, you know, I mean, really, you want your pastor to uh, be saying that about every sermon, right? You know? You don't want a pastor to get up here and he's like, yeah, <laughs> you, know, you know, this text, yeah, you know, um, you know, but uh, you know, there's certain studies, though, that you do as a, as a, as a preacher that it just resonates more with you for whatever reason. And, and this has been one of those uh, the studies for me. And so, but I have to say this, I have to say this, of all the names of God that, that uh, we've studied so far, this is the one that when I put the sermon schedule together months and months ago, I thought, oh, okay, that'll be easy. Okay, God's truth. Okay, that'll be easy. And I have found, actually, this was the hardest one for me to put a sermon together on because there's so much here and trying to distill it and, and keep it in the context of what's happening here. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have a, a basic outline today. Uh, if you picked up one of the, the outlines on the, on the table, uh, the welcome table or was handed to you, you uh, it'll just be a basic outline today, but hopefully as we go through this, it'll be helpful for us to have a better understanding of God. And the point of this is, it's not just to have more academic knowledge of God, but for our hearts and our souls to be moved towards that great God, okay? So um, we've already read the text. You know it's our custom here. Whenever that we get up to, to talk about the Word of God, uh, we want to pause and ask God's enablement here because this is, the, this is the Word of the living God here. That's what, you know, it was just read to us. And, and we don't want to mess around with that. We don't want to make it so that this is just, you know, we're just, you know, casually making comments about this. And so we're going to ask God for a special enablement here as we go into this uh, study of God's Word here. So, Pray with me. Father, um, it is my joy and my honor to stand in front of these people who have gathered here today and open to this text of Scripture and talk about this uh, psalm here and, and specifically this, this one of your names. 
We, de- we dare not do that without asking for your guidance, though. We dare not do that without asking for you to, to help our, our hearts and our minds grapple with what this text has for us. I dare not speak now without asking and leaning on you for your enablement because these are not my words. These are your words here that are written in this book, and, and we want to treat it as such. And so I, I am so grateful for this opportunity, but, Lord, we, just, we know that we need you. So, Spirit of God, we're asking right now that you'd remove distractions. Spirit of God, we're asking that I would be able to communicate this text in a way that is helpful to those who are listening, whether here or online that it would be, that what I say would be accurate to the text, that it would be beneficial, God. And so we know what we need you for this. And so we pause now knowing that we can depend on you because you truly are Jehovah El Elmet, the God of truth. For it's in your name we do pray. Amen. Now some of you, looking at this text that was just read for you, you see what's on the screen, Jehovah El Elmet, the Lord God of truth, you're looking, you're trying to figure out where Wayne read that at. Like, where does it say the Lord God of truth? Well, this is a translation issue. So in chapter, in verse 5, it says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. This, the, the, the English Standard Version translators, which is the, the version that we're reading from here, uh, they made a decision to use the word faithful rather than true uh, or truth, the God of truth. Both are, are accurate. Okay, and so some other translations will have the Lord God of truth. If some of you have, uh, just out of curiosity, how many of you have a translation open where it says Lord God of truth? Anyone here? Okay, good. Okay, okay, a few of you do. Um, so I think uh, King James does, New American Standard, I think. Uh, others have more of a faithful God. You say, okay, what's the difference? Really, they're both words trying to get at the same idea is what's happening here. Because when we say that God is the God of truth, that's not just saying that he's always right, although that is true and that is part of what is trying to be communicated here. Really what's trying to be communicated is that he's reliable and because he's faithful and because he's true, we can trust him. He's credible, he's, he's reliable, he's faithful, he's true. All of those things are kind of packed into one. So you're going to hear me talk about God as being the faithful God in the sermon. You're going to hear me talk about being the God of truth in the sermon. And I'm talking about the same idea here, okay? Because that's what's being covered here. So as we go through this text, we're going to lo- really look at, uh, first of all, David's his situation. Then we're going to look at his response. And then we're going to look at the advice he gives, okay? That's kind of how we're going to go this morning. So first of all, the situation, David's situation that he has in this text. We only read the first five verses, and that kind of gives an introduction to what David is talking about there, what he's feeling in this moment here, but there are so many other things that are happening in this, and I'll highlight those in a minute as we go through the text here. But you say, okay, when David is asking for God to be his refuge, he's asking for him to not be put ashamed, they say, what is happening here? What's going on in David's life? Now, in some of the Psalms, we understand what is actually happening historically because that little statement above or verse 1 or verse 1 in our translations, other translations in other languages actually would have that as verse 2, what our verse 1 is would be actually verse 2, because that little statement the, that says the choir master, the choir master, a psalm of David, that's in the original. That's in the original language, and so that's why some translations in another language, that's actually verse 1. But in our context, that's just kind of an introduction here. In those phrases there, sometimes we can find out exactly what was happening historically in the life of the author. Psalm 
51 is one of those examples. Uh, does anyone remember what was going on in Psalm 51, why David wrote that? What was in that response? Does anyone remember? Yeah? Yeah, the sin was specifically David's sin with Bathsheba, you remember? And so if you look at that, you'll see that that was there. You can kind of put it in the context. Here, we don't, we're not treated to that. It's always wonderful when we have that, but here we're not treated to that. It just says to the choir master, Psalm of David. And then when you start looking at all the different things that we're going to look at in a minute, we're saying, what is going on here? Now, here's the thing that we take away from this. First of all, is that it's really ambiguous to us. It's just absolutely ambiguous to us. And so the question is, is this a military situation? Because in verse 21, he says, when I was besieged in a besieged city. Was, was he talking about when he was a king and when people were trying to threaten his kingdom? Is that what was going on here? But yet, in other times, it seems like he's talking about something personal. Like in verse 10, when he says, my strength fails because of my iniquity. Is he talking about that uh, he's, he's, he's just recognized his own sinfulness and he's afraid God's rejecting him? What is happening here? He's talking about people that are, are, um, um, are saying uh, wrong things about him and all these things. The idea here is we don't know what's going on here. Now, in some ways, that's frustrating to someone who likes history. To someone who likes history and someone who likes answers. It's a little frustrating. It's like, what is going on here? But here's the beauty of it. The beauty of ambiguity in this state, in this situation, is that it makes for a, an easier application universally. So what we're going to cover in this text here, in this sermon here, is actually is much easier to apply it to any situation that we might have. So while it was ambiguous to us, it was not so to David. In fact, it was actually incredibly stressful and anxiety-inducing. You look at this psalm and you see that he is a wreck. He's absolutely undone. I mean, in, in verse 9, look at verse 9. It says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. My body and my soul and my body also. Have you ever been in a situation where you were so overcome with grief that you just cried and cried and cried and then you felt like crying some more, but there were no tears left? You were undone. That's what David's going through right now in this text. He is absolutely undone. The grief continues in verse 10 when he says, My life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. It seemed like his life could never get on track. It was one thing after another after another. That's why he said, My life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing. You say, well, wait a minute here. David was king. I mean, that's got to be a good life, right? I mean, to be a king? What do you mean he didn't get his life on track? I mean, think about his entire life, what we know about David. He's left out by his brothers, okay, in the field. He's overlooked when they're, they're looking for a king. He's out there by himself. He's overlooked. He's, he, it seems that he, that he probably wasn't the tallest guy around and all the sort, sorts of things. And, 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 then, and then when he finally does uh, uh, become king, uh, well, or leading up to that, the whole idea was Saul, uh, um, you know, he, He's not looking to become king, but that it was thrust upon him. And so the current king decides, oh, this is great. I have an heir that I know who's going to captain, so I can groom him, right? No, that's not how he responds. He starts chucking javelins at the guy, okay? And then David gets the job of like, okay, he's really mad. So here's what you do. You're going to have the job to go calm him down with how you play music. 
think about it here. It's like, well, like, I'm the one he's mad at. Why are you sending me in there? But this is what David had to do. David's life, it just seems like it was one thing after another. Then he becomes king. Of course, he messes up with Bathsheba. He sins against her, sins against the king, sins the kingdom, sins against God. And then he loses a child in the midst of that. And then later on, he has children. And what do they do? They are just constantly trying to dethrone him from the kingdom. And so this is a life of one thing after another. In fact, so many of the Psalms that we have are written when David was on the run when people were trying to take his throne away from him, and namely, his own son trying to do this. This was a bad situation. This was someone whose heart was literally wrung out. Now, I don't know where in David's timeline this psalm appears because it's not, we're not told that. But what we, what we do know is that he was in incredible distress here. He was very concerned about being ashamed, verse 1, verse 11, verse 17. Look at verse 12. He felt isolated as if no one cared. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. He says, I, I might as well be dead. No one remembers me. No one cares about me. He was subjected to rumors and gossip in verses 13 and 18. Evil plans were laid against him, verse 13, 15, and 20. But then it climaxed here in verse 22. Look at verse 22. I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. He felt abandoned by God. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that God wasn't listening anymore? Have you ever felt that when you pray, no one was there? Have you felt like that there was just, a, there was just this, this silence from the Father when you're crying out to him? Have you ever felt like he just doesn't see you? He, sees, he seems to see everyone else. He seems to be working in their life. But then there's you over there. You see, David here, he's feeling abandoned by God. The man who God used to write the scripture is subjected to intense doubt and intense uh, uh, distress in his life. Have you been there? Maybe some of you are here today that you're there right now. Maybe right now you on the inside are just clinging on for dear life right now. Maybe you're just, you're, you, you just say, on the outside, I'm pretty good at putting the smile on, particularly in church. You got you to gotta be happy in church, okay? And so you come to church and, 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 and you put on the good face or around work and around your coworkers, you're, you're happy. But inside, you are devastated and crumbling. Maybe that's you here today. If that's you, this psalm is for you, Okay. So I really want you to, to pay attention to what David has to say for us today. Now, maybe some of you say, you know, I, I, you know, I kind of feel bad, but, you know, that's not me. I mean, things are actually going pretty good. Things are going pretty good. Well, two things to say to you for that. Just wait. <laughs> no, um, but it's going to happen, right? You're going to have a time where something goes bad, okay? So, so we know that. But also I'll say this, is that this is an argument from greater to lesser, if what David has for us by the power of the Holy Spirit in Psalm 31 here, if what he has for us is incredibly helpful for those who are in distress, then argument from greater to lesser says, then surely it is helpful for those who have lesser problems in life as well. And so this, this psalm is for you as well. 
So it really is for all of us here today. And so, um, uh, you know, David's situation, while I can't give you specifics, I want you to see, while it's ambiguous, it is absolutely devastating to him. And I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you have walked through. I don't know what you're currently walking through. But David's situation, you probably are resonating with on one level or another. So how does he respond to this? How does he respond to this? You know, some people look at this and it sounds like he's just whining. But there's much more to it than that. What he does is that he's actually embracing this emotionally exhausting journey of life. He's embracing this and you say, it doesn't sound like he's embracing it. Well, the point is, is that he's actually wrestling with God about this. It's not just in this psalm, right? He goes back and forth in this, in, in this psalm, but also in other psalms where it seems like in one moment, he's worshiping God. You're my rock. You're my fortress. And the next thing, he's like, don't forget about me. It, it, it seems like he, he goes back and forth. Sometimes he's doubting, and sometimes he's even panicking a bit when he says, I said in my alarm, he has forgotten me, and, and he, he's, I'm cut off from your sight. And so there's this emotionally exhausting journey called life that David just has embraced. And the reason why I say he's embraced is because if you read through the Psalms, you will see that this comes up over and over again. Just to, just, just to buy an illustration, I could show you so many. One in three Psalms, there's 150 Psalms, so at least one in three, depends how you categorize them, are Psalms of Lament. So that means, you know, there's like 50 Psalms that are just Psalms of Lament. Look at Psalm 13. Keep your place here in Psalm 31. Uh, just go back just a few pages. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, it's page 453. Look at this. Look, look at what he says here. Psalm, this is Psalm 13. Again, to the choir master, Psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy says I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. This is David's life. And this, is, this is why the, the scriptures is where we run to, my friends. Because we can identify with this many times, but then it says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Sometimes he's, he's complaining in distress, and the other times he's worshiping God. There's this emotionally exhausting journey of life. Now understand this. What this means, and I, and, and I just need to make sure you understand this, particularly if some of you are considering becoming a Christian, you need to understand this. That's a Christian life does not mean that it's a life devoid of disappointment and tears. Okay? Anyone who tells you that if you follow Christ, then everything will be great and everything will be wonderful, they are not teaching you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? And I don't like saying this. I don't like, I don't like to be the guy that says, yeah, you're going to cry. Okay, you're going to be disappointed. But we set ourselves up for failure sometimes because what we do is we, we don't see the value of those tears. We don't see the value of those disappointments, but God does. Now, one of the reasons why I know that we're going to, if you, if you, if you become a Christian, is that you're going to actually have more sorrow in some ways is because of a metaphor that the Bible often uses for conversion. There's kind of like a saying or a metaphor what, he's what, what the Bible says. It says that, that what God will do is that he will take hearts of stone and make them into what? Hearts of flesh. 
okay? Hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. That means that you're converted. That means you're following God. If now you have a heart of flesh. Now, what does that mean, though? It means that you feel. Hearts of stones don't feel anything. Hearts of flesh, they feel. Hearts of flesh cry. Hearts of flesh have this understanding of disappointment. They seem to feel deeper and deeper. Have you ever noticed that the more a Christian grows in their faith, the more mature they get in, 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 in faith? It, it seems like the more they feel, the deeper that they feel. Why? Because their heart of stone is being transformed into a heart of flesh. And they see what God is doing in their life, and they see this. And then you think, okay, well, you know, this doesn't sound very masculine or, or, or something like that. Well, the point is, is that Jesus was a man of sorrows, right? So the Christian life isn't a life of less tears. It actually includes more sorrows until we get to heaven because we're identifying with the man of sorrows here, and he's changing our hearts to process things in a healthy way, in a right way. Now, parenthetically, I just need to say this. Um, we're actually going to talk more about this in our next sermon series that we're going to start in two weeks when we go through the book of Lamentations. It's going to be a quick survey over the book of Lamentations, but it's going to kind of introduce this idea is that this psalm is a psalm of lament. And what that does is that helps us know how to process our feelings and emotions. Okay, I just lost all the men. I get it, okay? <laughs> okay, I get it, okay? It's like, what is this guy talking about here? Processing emotions and stuff like this, you know? Okay, bear with me, guys, okay? Bear with me here, okay? There are really two ditches to avoid when it comes to emotions. Again, this is parent, parenthetical here. And, and the one side of emotions is that we're afraid of them, okay? That's most of us guys, okay? And so we're afraid of emotions, when, when I first got married, okay, my wife had to tell me something multiple, multiple times. I don't know if you remember what I'm saying. Do you know what I'm going to say here? Okay. Exactly. She said, don't be afraid of my tears. And I said, but I am. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's like, whoa, 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 what do you do here? It's like we lock up, right? You know, and so there's this, this paralyzing effect that sometimes our emotions has on us. Okay, so on the one hand, it's like we're afraid of emotion, so we don't want to do it, and we don't want to have any of that, and, you know, because that, that may not be as masculine or, or something like that, or it's a sign of weakness or something like that. So, you know, we're not going to do it. So we're afraid of emotions. Now, the other ditch to avoid, is that we're controlled by emotions, okay? That's the other ditch to avoid. And then, and then it, it just rules us, it's sovereign over our lives, and that we just make all of our decisions based on whatever emotion we're feeling in that moment. Both ditches are bad to avoid. Here's where the book of Psalms, here's where the book of Lamentations, they help us here. Because it helps us, when we read a psalm of a lament like this, it helps us understand how to thread that needle, how to avoid both ditches here, is that we don't have to be afraid of emotions, but yet we're not going to be controlled by emotions. We actually have something that God's given to us called lament. And what lament is, is really is that path from heartbreak to hope. It's that path from pain to promise. It's this idea of the, have you ever noticed that David here almost always in these Psalms of Lament, he is complaining, he is crying out to God, but yet he's worshiping at the same time because that's what lament does. Lament calibrates the pain and it leads us to the promise. It helps the heartbreak then go and turn into hope. It doesn't necessarily cause, tell us that we need to ignore the, the difficulty 
difficulty or ignore the problem and just act like it doesn't happen. It, tells, it actually is the way for us to process this. And again, more of that's going to come in our next sermon series on Lamentations. Here's a little bit of preview of that. But this is what David's doing here is that he is helping. He's going through this situation here where he's embraced this emotionally exhausting journey of life and he's doing it through the process called lament. And let me encourage you, lament. You might be going through one of those situations right now where you just don't know the answers. You don't know why God is doing what he's doing. You don't know why in the world things are happening. Embrace lament. Talk to God about it. Let that lead you to worship him. But it doesn't mean all the questions are going to be answered. David here doesn't get all of his questions answered. But he does end up hoping in God. And we'll get there. And we'll get there now. He centers his hope on the character of God. He centers his hope on the character of God. This is where he gets it when he says, You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God, Jehovah El Amet. He says that you are truly trustworthy. You are faithful. You are the true God. And what does he do? How does he build this? How does he know that to be true? Because throughout this psalm, he begins to talk about different characteristics of God. He begins to show Oh, God is trustworthy. He said he's trustworthy because of his perfect love. He talks about this in verse 7, verse 16, verse 21. He's talking about steadfast love. We also read about that in chapter, excuse me, in Psalm uh, 13 as well. It was God's perfect love. He says, you are trustworthy, God. I can trust you. You are the true God because you love perfectly. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could love perfectly? I mean, think about, think about the, the people in your life who you love. I mean, you love a spouse, you love a family member, a child. Think about the people who you love. Think about how that they love you. And I'll guarantee you, every one of you and myself included, we have loved imperfectly and we've had to apologize. The people, in fact, here's where it's really sad. The people that we love the most are the ones that we often have to apologize the most to because we've hurt them the most. We'll guard our tongue around everyone else, but around the ones we love the most, we're very free with what we say. We'll make time for everyone else, but we'll ignore the people who live inside of our own houses. You see, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just love perfectly? God does. He does. He is the God of truth. And so he, we, our hope is built on the character of God that he loves without fail and without crack or without, without any type of, of fault at all in his love. He is the God of love. We see his omniscience, verse 7. He says, I rejoice in steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. He says, you know about these things, and so you are a God of truth. You are faithful, you are reliable, you are trustworthy. I can depend on you because you know these things. Do you realize that nothing ever surprises God? Do you realize that there's nothing that ever that says, well, man, I didn't know about that. I mean, how many times has someone in our family who we love so much, have they surprised us with something they've said or a decision they've made? He looked at it like, who are you? Who are you? Why did you do that? Why did you say that? This never was God. Because God 
knows all things. And so this is why David says, I, whatever situation I'm in, you are the God of truth. You are the faithful God, and you are my hope because you know all things. You know all of what's happening to me. You know what they're saying about me. You know the rumors. You know how I'm being overlooked. You know how I'm being maligned. You know how all these things are happening to me, and it's like it, it, it's not like that, that you are just uh, um, uh, totally ignorant of that. And so you're aware of this, and you're powerful, and you're good, and I can trust you. This is where he's settling his hope on. And again, it's a process. This is, this is not easy, right? Uh, he's trustworthy because of his grace, verse 9. I need to keep going. His, 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 his goodness in verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness. And so he's, he's going back and forth with this, and he's talking about how his strength fails and how he's talking about how he feels like he's been forgotten and everything. But then at the same time, he says, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. And work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. He says he centered his hope on the character of God, Jehovah El Amet, because he is true and faithful, because he is love, his omniscience, his grace, his goodness. And then we see his mercy in verse 22. He says, I said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. It's a merciful God. You see, I mean, here we have where David is just leaning into this God, the God of truth and the faithful God, because he could trust him. So I just want to encourage you today, even though God may appear silent, you can trust him. Okay? He's the God of truth. He's faithful. He's someone that you can depend on. He's someone that that is, is not going to forsake you or let you down. It may feel that way at times. I would be lying to tell you if I never felt that. I'd be lying if I said that I've never felt like God has ignored me or abandoned me. So I lament. and God reminds me and he brings me back to center on hope. You see, it's important that it, uh, of, of what makes this uh, God trustworthy is his character of who he is and the motivations that he has. I was trying to think of an illustration for this, and, you know, this is one of those illustrations where I'm like, I think it works, so, you know, give me some feedback on this, not preferably real time, maybe later, okay, um, but uh, here, here's one of the things I was thinking about this, okay, you know, if I were to go to you and I were to say, listen, here, here I, I, got, I, got, I got some plans, okay, what we're going to do is, uh, I met this guy, okay, I met this guy downtown Madison, and, you know, he really is interested in the human body and stuff like this, and so he says that, you know, I mean, he, he's willing just to, 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 make an incision and kind of give a tutorial on what goes on inside the body and something like this. And we need someone to kind of do this. And so why don't you come with me? And then this guy, he's going he's gonna to do this, right? Okay. Now, again, no one here is going to say, yeah, that sounds like a great plan. Sounds like a fun night. Sounds good. Okay. People are going to look at me like I'm absolutely out of my mind. Yet, at the same time, thousands of people every day Go to people that they've met maybe once, lay on a table, let a friend of theirs knock them out and put them to sleep, have them cut themselves open, cut their bodies open, do whatever they're doing, sew them back up, and then send them home. We do it all the time. What's the difference? I tell you the difference. The credibility of the surgeon and the motivation that prompted that. 
That's what makes the difference. And so when you're going through a situation like David is going through here, what makes the difference in the world is not that the situation necessarily is different or something like that. What makes the, the difference, all the difference in the world, is, is the one who is in control, the one who's holding the scalpel knife, is he credible and does he have good motivation? And if you doubt that about God, you're going to be a wreck. But if you center on that about God, if you center on the fact that, okay, I don't have to understand why this is happening, but I know he's credible, I know he's good, and I know his motivation is right, then you can get through this. Not because of, uh, of, of you know, uh, some people being better than the others. It's because that we can trust the character of God. He is Jehovah El Elmet. He is the true, the faithful God. Okay? That's how we get through these things. Um, how does David express this hope in Jehovah El Almet? He says in verse 5, he says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Now, when I read that, or when, when Wayne read that first, and then I'm reading it now, does that spark a memory for anyone? Who else says this? Exactly, right? On the cross, Jesus, when he gives up his life, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen said a similar thing. Uh, Peter appropriates it and tells us that we need to have the same type of attitude. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, he says that what Jesus did is that when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return, but instead he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And see, this was the key for David. He says, into your hands I'm committing my spirit. I, I, I just got to trust you. I don't see it. I don't understand all what's going on. I've got a lot of answers. I've got a lot of feelings raging right now, but I'm just going to commit my spirit to you. Jesus did that. He did the exact same thing, and he did that so that we could. He did this so that we could have this hope in God. He did this so that we can know that, yes, God did, won't let us down. And so he's the perfect example. It's this man of sorrows does the exact same thing. Now, what we need to understand of this is that really what's happening here is if you notice, there's a lot of things about David here. He's talking about, about what people are doing to him, about how they, he's saying, don't let me be ashamed. He says the rumors, the traps that they're setting for me. And so there's a lot of things that were going on about other people here. But what, when we commit ourselves to this, uh, God's spirit, what he's doing here is he's showing how he's putting his hope in God. And what this does is that this is really the path to freedom from the fear of man is really what's happening here. Okay, now what do I mean by fear of man? Fear of man is this idea of where, where what people think about you has an unhealthy influence or control over the decisions that you make. Okay, that's fear of man. You, and we all struggle with that on one level or another, okay? This path of saying, into your hands, God, the God of truth, the faithful God, Jehovah al I'm committing my spirit to you. That's the path to the freedom from the fear of man. Because it doesn't matter what other people think if you're trusting in the one who's, tr who's faithful and true. It doesn't matter what people are saying about you. It doesn't matter that you can't set the record straight about the rumors that are being told about you at work or at school. So don't you see how this is so important? Because so you're going to go to work and then you're going to be in a situation at some point where someone's going to think something of you that is just not true. How do you deal with that? Do you go around trying to set the record straight? Maybe that's appropriate. Maybe it's not. You students, you're going to be starting school here in a couple months. I know, I'm sorry, okay, but it's, it's coming fast. It's coming fast. You're going to be starting school up again, okay? So you, uh, you, you students, understand this. There's going to be times where there's going to be conflict in the hallways, in the classroom or something, and people are going to say things about you. And there's going to be rumors about you. 
What do you do in that situation? I mean, you will wear yourself out trying to kill every one of those rumors. In fact, it's like a -a whack-a-mole game. The more you whack one, others pop up. And you will absolutely be crushed by what people think of you if you're not careful. But when you say into your hands, Jehovah God, El Omet, the God of truth, the God who knows truth. I am concerned about what the God of truth knows to be true about me above all else. Don't you see how that's freeing? Don't you see? So this is how David deals with this. Not all relationships are going to be repaired in this lifetime. It's just not going to happen. I wish it were the case. I was greatly encouraged a while back in my life where there was a situation that there was a relationship in my life that broke down and I tried so hard to repair it. I wrote letters and, and I asked a common friend to go speak to this person on my behalf um, and it just never got repaired. I used to feel like, okay, you know, we're supposed to be Christians, we're supposed to dwell in unity and peace and things like this. You know, how do I move forward with this? And then I happened to be reading in my Bible, 2 Timothy. And I was struck by 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul is talking about the end of his life. He says, I'm ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight. And he's talking about this in just a great way of like, okay, this was like his swan song. After he says those things, you know what he says? He talks about some people, specifically one person by the name of Alexander. He says, Alexander the coppersmith has done me much harm, but the Lord will repay. At the end of his life, he just understood, we're not going to reconcile I'm assuming he tried, but the fact that there was someone that had something against him, it didn't control him. He said, into your hands I commit this. You see, there are some people that are just so constantly trying to work out every situation and smooth out every wrinkle. And again, should we seek reconciliation in relationships? Absolutely. You've heard me preach long enough. For those of you who are part of this church, you know that that's a big part of what we want to do here. But at the same time, There are going to be times where it's just not possible. David found himself in this. Instead of letting that undo him, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit, Lord God of truth. So that's what we do. That's what we do. So what what is his advice as I wrap this up today? So we've seen the situation. We've seen his response to this. What advice would would he give uh, to us uh, today? Well, I think verse 23 and 24 answers that question. It says this, it says, love the Lord, all you saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your hearts take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. I'm just going to make this really simple here as we go through this. First of all, he just says, love the Lord. How do we respond to this? He says, make sure where your heart's affections, that they're aligned in God, in the Lord God of truth, the faithful God. Is there a better place to place your affections than the one true God, the one who is faithful, the one who is true? There is no safer investment, if you will, than placing your affections on the one who is faithful and true absolutely perfectly. There's no safer. Some people are afraid of relationships because they've had a bad relationship and they've been hurt and they're afraid to move forward in a new relationship. 
But when you're, when you're putting your hope in a faithful, true God, there's no fear for that because he says he will never leave you or forsake you. Now, it feels that way at times. But look, at this is why the Psalms of Lament are so helpful to us is because it gives us what the hope is. It tells us, it, it, it gives the pathway of someone who's walked these paths. And in the end, God's faithfulness always comes. The book of Job is this way. This is where, you know, I told you before, at the end of James, the book of James, where it talks about, it says, you've heard of the patience of Job. And it says, you know, you've heard about this and how it shows the, 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 the kindness of the Lord and the patience and the, or the goodness and the kindness of the Lord. I read that for the first time. I remember thinking, when I think of the story of Job, I don't think of the goodness of God. But yet, I tell you this. I know I've told you this before. At the end of the book of Job, after all of what he's gone through, after that long debate between him and God, here's what Job says at the end of this. He says, I had uh, uh, heard you with my ears, and now I see you. See, he knew God so much better as a result of it. And he knew that God is the only one that satisfies more than anything else in this world. He believed that because he had lived it. And it was only the real struggle, only the time where he thought God had abandoned him. It was the time where he literally wished that he would just die. He literally wished he was never been born. He had to go through that process to get to the other side and say, God, you are what is best. And Job would have said, into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, this is why life's journey is this way. Is it proves what is truly good and truly faithful and truly right. And my friend, it is God. It is God. I pray you believe that. Love the Lord. Send your ultimate affections on him. And so there's a heart response here. There's also some action here where it talks about being faithful, strong, and courageous here. He says, you need to be strong. You need to take heart. You need to be faithful in verse 23. This is what you got to do. You have some responsibility here. You have to live this way. This is a response. And then he says, I'm just going to summarize this. He says, wait on God, okay? Wait on this. And so what do these things cover here? These covers our affections and our actions. They, they cover our head, heart, and hands, however you want to put it. It's a holistic advice of what we should be doing in response to life's difficulty here. And that is we're centering our affections on the Lord. Lord God of truth, and we are obeying him and serving him, knowing that there is no greater person to serve, there is no greater uh, a person to walk alongside with, because he is the faithful and true God. So I don't know what you're walking through today. I don't know what you're going to walk through tomorrow. But I can tell you this, God is there. God is there. It may not feel like it at times. You know, much of what I do as a pastor is I just try to remind people of things that they already know. I remember, I've had people sit in my office. I've, I've talked to people right over there after service, weeping. Where's God, Jeremy? I've wept those. I've had those same thoughts. Where's God? But I'm going to tell you this. The Lord God of truth is always there. Always there. So, this is lament. You process your emotions and your feelings, and it leads to hope. Hope in the Lord God of truth. So how is this possible? How do we wait when that's the last thing we want to do? Well, it's possible because he's true and he's faithful. We don't want to love someone who's not faithful, who, who's not truthful or faithful. How could we? We, don't want, we? we can be strong and faithful knowing that God cannot lie, 
and that God knows the truth no matter what anyone else may say or think. We can wait on God knowing that he is faithful and his promises will never fail. So I close with this. Numbers chapter 23. God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said that he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? I guess I would just tell you this. Go back and trace how God has kept his promises. Go back and look at how he has proven himself over and over again. I am ashamed at times of how many times that I have to have God remind me that he is faithful and true. But here's the thing. Like Ben reminded us in, adult, uh, in the Bible and Breakfast Hour, and it's one of the things he's amazed about God about, is that God's patient. He loves us. And he wants us to be faithful and he encourages us and we must be faithful because remember, there's the judge that's coming. He's going to judge the living and the dead. We talked about it earlier. But we wait on him. So do you trust God? Please hear me that, you know, you must, you can trust in God.